Do you know that our friends haven't seen Lovesick? Have you seen Lovesick, Annabelle? I have. Did you like it? Wait, no. Big sick. <laughs> I, that's what I was thinking. What's Lovesick? Lovesick. Oh, Lovesick, they changed it. They changed it to Sex yeah, Education. From, no, no, Squirtle Recall. Oh, was, oh became it was sick. called Squirtle. Yes, yeah, I've it became seen Lovesick. Yes, okay, okay. Yes, I've seen, yes. It's on Netflix. Annabelle, I think you'd like it. If you liked Love Life, you'd like Lovesick. Yes, I loved Love Life. Also yes, because I love life. <gasps> Annabelle, tell her about Love Life. Okay, well, this was very exciting. I should introduce you to this. And it was so worth it that I used up my HBO free trial so that I could watch it. Um, it's Anna Kendrick. And basically, it goes over. Oh, like I the- watched that too. I watched that already. Yep. Okay, never mind. The thing is, all these things have very unremarkable names. So I don't like... How do you scrotal recall? At least you could always remember. Scrotal recall was. was a great name, and then they changed it to lovesick because someone, maybe an executive, was like, "This is, this is targeting the wrong audience." Maybe. But can <laughs> um, I just say, for once, it is satisfying that like no one was censoring like, um, like the, it's not a wet and gushy situation, right? Like this is a someone was censoring the male anatomy this time. So that's equality. Whatever. That's equality. Like, this is feminism. That is the power of feminism. Um, <laughs> well, welcome everyone to it's kind of a funny story. Oh wait, Annabelle, you were gonna say something. <laughs> I just said equality and censorship. Please go on. <laughs> okay. Well, welcome everyone to it's kind of a funny story. I'm Aisha. And I'm Mariam. Each week we delve into different moments in history where pop culture and politics collide. Yes. And it's our 20th episode today, which is really exciting. We are very excited uh, because we have a special guest on the pod. Annabelle, would you like to introduce yourself? Yes. Hi. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited. Um, congrats on your 20th episode. And um, I'm a friend of Aisha's. We went to college together. Um, and I live in London. I'm a reporter for Quartz. I cover politics and business and all manners of things. Um, and I also have a passion for trashy reality TV, which is what led me here today um in the hallowed halls of this podcast and i am very excited to share it with you all annabelle is also just a very accomplished journalist and she's hilarious and i appreciate the way that she can mold like politics and pop culture into the same conversation topic um dinner is never boring with annabelle which is always good and i can't believe you guys haven't met before we were just saying that i assumed we had met before and she had assumed we had met before but there's that's just not true. Everything I know about Annabelle, which is more than I probably should for her being a total stranger, is thanks to you, Aisha. Not that she's spilling your darkest secrets, Annabelle. Um, I'm just talking about like Annabelle you, all the time. <laughs> yeah. You're just like a, this character that exists um, in hear, all of my text threads. Yeah. Once you hear enough stories about someone, you basically know them. I, I feel like there's a, a degree after which once you've heard enough stories about someone, you could just consider that you guys have met, even if you haven't really. Yeah, I agree. Exactly. You like move up a tier, like because they're like, oh, you're a second yeah. or third degree person. You like move in a degree or something. Exactly. I was speaking to a friend about how both of us miss like third degree friends. Like you know the people you meet at parties, um, and you like become friends at the party because you have mutual friends, and you like share this one night where you're like bonding and like, oh, yes. this is the best person. Let's get let's get brunch, and then you never see each other again. Those are my favorite interactions because it's like short spurts of vulnerability and then you never have to deal with it again, which is exactly the amount of vulnerability I can do <laughs> is just like two hours with a stranger that I never talk to again. Well, Maybe I just you- miss plentiful social contact, you know, like, which is what third degree friends are is like you just there's just so many people around. I just miss that. Now it's like such a small, I mean, it's great because also like you get to be with your close circle of friends a lot more than you normally would, but it's, you know, I miss like just having loads of people around. Yeah. As someone who like, I get energy from other people. I I love being with my friends, but I do find that like, it can get really tiring if it's the same people for like four hours versus 20 people, you know, 50 people um, having fun outside. See, I have the, I have the other type of thing where I just get exhaustion from being around people too much um so when it's like people that I know and trust so if I just go quiet for a little while I don't have to explain why I've just gone quiet or why I'm like stepping into the kitchen and why I'm ignoring your text yeah (laughs) don't worry I've unmuted all of my group texts everyone everyone shows up I just choose so thankful yeah 
I'm so <laughs> grateful. Um, okay, so what is our 36 question today, Miriam? Um, so this is a good one. This is um, a topic that, you know, can go in lots of different directions, but um, it is, has there been any movie that has changed your sense of self? Um, so Aisha, why don't you start? Uh, do you have an answer to this one? I do have an answer. I thought I didn't have an answer, but then I thought more about the movie I chose and I was like, this is my answer. Um, so yeah, I don't really, I didn't really think that I had movies that had changed my sense of self. Like I was speaking to Annabelle last week, how it's mostly like books or music like Graceland. But uh, yesterday was the two year anniversary of Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse coming out in theaters and what a day that was for me. Um, so yeah, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, if you don't know, it's a comic book movie about getting bitten by a radioactive spider. It's also the first Spider-Man movie that's um, cartoon, it's animated. It's by the same guys who did the Lego movie. Um, and it kind of exists in the same universe as all the Spider-Man movies, but also not at all. Um, the reason I love the movie is, is because it's about believing in yourself despite the odds and understanding that superheroes aren't born, they're made. So when you're watching that movie and you know you feel like a child, at least I feel like a young child whenever I'm watching the movie and watching the protagonist, Miles Morales, learn that like he is powerful just within himself. And also like, you know, because it's a movie about different types of Spider-Man. So there's like an older Spider-Man, there's a female Spider-Man, there's a robot Spider-Man. It's about how like being a superhero, it's not about like what you look like or where you're born or if you're rich or like come from like a legacy. It's just about who you are inside. So I love Spider-Verse. It's the best movie ever. Please watch it if you haven't. And if you haven't like text me and I'll watch it with you literally. Will Netflix party. It's a, it's a fantastic movie. I will I was late to that party. Um I like knew the music and stuff like everybody, but I hadn't watched it and it truly blew my mind. Um it was amazing. Um what's yours? My answer, yeah, my answer is of course unnecessarily complicated um and existential, but whatever. That's me. Um so I think that for me, like one of the reasons pop culture generally has a really strange place in my life is that as I figured out how to cope with like how awkward I felt or how awkward I like physically looked growing up, I would like adopt like the combat boots or like the famous bangs that I had in college and these sorts of things. And people would associate me with like weird punky characters in movies, um, often like a manic pixie dream girl type character, um, <laughs> which is a whole other thing to unpack. That's um, a label I, I don't, do not I like. like. I did not feel like unpacking why people associate me with that character trope but that's okay um but I think that like I so there's a lot of characters and movies that kind of help shape my sense of self because people would say like oh you remind me of this character who I always thought was really cool so it actually ended up sort of boosting my self self-confidence and a lot of my self-worth is just like a patchwork of someone saying that I remind them of a tv show or a movie character um but the like two characters I actually do like think about way too often and like how I live my life is Cat from 10 Things I Hate About You um, and Olive from Easy A. I don't know why those two characters always stuck with me because of how uh, tough they are and snarky and like deeply intellectual. They've got like big sister protective energy, which I really appreciate. Um, so those two characters really stuck with me. And obviously like every Bollywood movie of a girl who felt like she was searching for her identity. Um, so that's my unnecessarily complicated, but very honest answer. Um, to your question. I mean, those are two good role models. Kat is someone who, when I was younger, I don't know about you, Annabelle, but when I was younger, I thought she was awful. And then the older I got, the more I was like, right? She was right. She was totally right. I mean, when you think about it, like the redemption of Miranda and Sex in the City, like, yes. <laughs> yeah. It's just, yeah. We just go I mean, to different things. Also, loving Blair and Gossip Girl. Like, whenever I watch it now, I'm like, Serena, first of all, her outfits aren't great. She's not a very nice friend. Blair at least has plans, you know? You know what? I was an early, early Blair stan. So that was my claim to fame that I, I smelled the water before it, you know? You're wearing it's a headband. The headband. You're yeah. wearing a headband. <laughs> In fact, so wait. I didn't write down a movie, but um, now that I think about it, actually, based on how you guys are describing it, um, when I moved to the US when I was uh, 10, I didn't speak English very well. Um, and I had this like accent and everything. And so, uh, a lot of how I learned English was like, we would at school would end at a ridiculously early time in the U S. Okay. Like it ended up. <laughs> it's true. 
because people yeah. do all these sports, okay? And I'm French. I didn't do any sports. So I just, <laughs> I would go home and I would have nothing to do from 2 p.m. And so I just watched a lot of TV. And basically, I spent my life watching the Disney Channel. And so I basically shaped my, like, American sense of self um, off of That's So Raven, The Sweet Life of Zack and Cody, Cheetah Girls, um, what else? <laughs> yeah, I mean, all, all the goodies. Hannah Montana, obviously. And then later on, Gossip Girl. So those are all the shows that kind of, you know, which is why I sometimes have really weird vocabulary. Like, I'll say a <laughs> word and someone will just look at me like, I, I say hoot a lot. Apparently that's not a thing that modern day Americans say, but. No. How do you say hoot? Like, that's a hoot? Like, he's such a hoot, you know? Like, he said something good or funny. Like, oh, is he's one of the Did one of the shows give you that word? Must have. Like, it must have. I didn't just. I, I can see Raven saying it. Like, ah, oh, that's a hoot. Yeah. I someone. mean, that's, that's some, like, for me, like, my, I didn't know anything about, like, how my other Texan like kids were growing up around me and so like similarly I was like I learned how to play along using Disney Channel which was obviously not an accurate representation of how to like be an American kid but in a very different way I was doing the same thing I think we all do that to some degree which is why pop culture growing up like is so formative for us yeah that's yeah it's, especially for our generation I feel like it's kind of how we shape ourselves um, in many ways yeah well well, now to the topic of this actual episode, not about like existential, like self-worth. Uh, we're talking about a couple of things. It's nearly Christmas. So we thought we'd do a really fun episode and we brought Annabelle on to talk about her favorite thing, the Bachelor franchise and why anyone should watch it. <laughs> my biggest love-hate relationship of my life. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Tell us why you're such a huge fan and why you think we should love it. Let's go into, let's get into it. Okay. Let me give you my elevator pitch. Okay, so um, the first and most important aspect of The Bachelor for me isn't actually the show, it's the community that comes with watching the show regularly. Um, and I think a lot of people will tell you that, that it, you know, they, they, could, they could live with or without the show. Like it's, it, it's, that's a, it's not like a life-shaping movie, you know, you could, you could live without it, but you couldn't live with um, without your weekly get together with your friends, watching the same thing, kind of following these characters journey along with them, having, you know, shared experiences. Um, so, you know, Aisha, obviously you and I watch it together. We have a Wednesday bracket, nights. Bachelor Wednesdays. We have a bracket that goes with it. We have a tradition that like amazingly has survived this pandemic that we've managed to somehow keep watching it every single week on Zoom, you know, and <laughs> That like if you didn't have the show and the excuse to get together at a specific time every week it might not happen um and so I started watching The Bachelor in college and that those are some of my best memories with my roommates and I started watching it senior year and so it was some of our last memories together as roommates and um I cherish it for that and I think a lot of people would find that same sense of community watching it wherever they are uh so that's number one point um number two obviously the romance I mean, really, like there's a lot of trashy reality TV out there. I should know. I watch all of it. But uh, there's nothing like uh, the romance of The Bachelor. So the skeptics out there will say that most of these people don't end up together and they would be right. But all Instagram influencers right now. Yeah. OK, so I will say this is my disclaimer. The more recent seasons, I would say maybe like 20, 2016, 17 onwards, are full of people who are just there for the Instagram follows. You can make a killing getting off of the show. As long as you survive to like halfway through the season, roughly, and people vaguely know your name, you will make so much money that it's worth it. So that aspect of it, obviously nobody really likes. Um, and the show itself is trying to fight it by recruiting or trying not to recruit that exact same type of person who always comes on. Um, but especially in the earlier seasons, there actually were a lot of really cool love stories that worked out and that are still together. And so I first started, and I'll get into this later, obviously, but I first started with Rachel Lindsay's season. And Me too. Uh, that was my first one. Yeah. And it's such Wait, a really, yeah, that was my first one. And then I went back and watched some of the older ones. Okay. Because there's like a couple of seasons that are just so such like cult seasons that you have to have seen them to understand some of the references and some of the people that keep coming up. Um, but Rachel's season, like she ended up with the guy, not only with the guy that she picked at the end, but the guy that she gave her first impression rose to. 
uh, and they're still married. And, you know, there's a bunch of examples like that. The most recent season, you know, Claire Crawley and Dale Moss are still together. Um, well, I mean, well, well, they were yeah. spotted in New York this weekend. I was reading a blog um, about them being together in New York this weekend. So they're still together, Claire and Dale. Claire is moving to New York to be with him. I thought he was from South Dakota. Yeah, but I think he lives in New York. Oh, okay. None of the, okay, so here's, so this is, this is why this is fascinating to me. I started watching The Bachelor when I was 12. Um, wow. I, <laughs> I was watching vintage Bachelor as a teenager. Um, did not tell my parents I was doing this. This is like when ABC Online had just launched and they were releasing episodes online and I could watch them like just on my own. And um, so like, I, and then I burnt out in college. Like by the time I got to college, I like had my friends and my roommates all start watching it. We loved it. But the last season I watched all the way through was Farmer Chris. Um, and he's the only person who still like just is a farmer. The rest of these like Midwest people have like, yeah, moved to New York or LA. But Farmer Chris, who I still, that's what I, that I call him that, like that's not what he goes by. <laughs> but um, he he still is in Iowa or wherever. And he does like, he just like posts his fields and does like hashtag corn, <laughs> hashtag soil. Like, <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Isn't it, did Rachel give up her legal practice? Cause I know she was a lawyer as well. Um, yeah, she, she did, yeah. Why did she stop being so a lawyer? Actually, so the thing with Rachel, if you read interviews with her, she'll tell you that she always kind of wanted to go into broadcast journalism and especially she's a huge sports fan. So actually yeah. I heard the show was a really smart pivot because it allowed her to go on screen and she has such a magnetic personality that like it was basically one giant audition for her the job she ultimately took which is she's an ESPN anchor um and she's also the co-host of an MTV show called um Ghosted I think uh mm -hmm. and so so she was like always meant to be on TV you know what I mean um and so I think like for her it worked out really well but there's plenty of people and like the first one being Tasha, right I mean she was a phlebologist when she went on Colton season. And now she, what did, what did she say, Aisha? When someone asked her what she does? She said it really well. She said that like, oh, like I, you know, I, I travel a lot, you know, for my life brand. It was the way she said it, it didn't sound like she was an influencer. It sounded like she just traveled a lot and her life was perfect. And it was a really, really good answer. Um, yeah. But Taisha is like magnetic. She's such a star. So tell us more about like Taisha and like what the franchise looks like now. So that was the my, my third point to convince you all to watch The Bachelor, which is that um, even though it's based on a premise that can seem super retrograde and like, ew, why would I watch, you know, a guy or like 30 girls competing to get one mediocre guy's attention, um, which yes, in some cases, but it actually is changing. And I think a lot of it is because fans stick by the franchise um, as opposed to like abandoning it. So the, the, the campaigns like the Bachelor Diversity campaign, um, they've been really successful at trying to get uh, contestants of color to come on and try to, uh, you know, call out ABC and encourage them to cast not only more diverse cast, but also more diverse producers, uh, which I think is really important. And so, you know, now we're in a situation where we had, we are currently having our first Black and Latina Bachelorette, Taisha. Um, we are about to get the first uh, Black Bachelor, Matt James, whose season starts in January. We've just had, I think, and, and beyond the like diversity on paper, like, oh, this person ticks this box. During the seasons, they've made space for important conversations that normally I think five years ago wouldn't have gotten any airtime. Um, so one example that comes to mind is in Tasha's season, she talks with Ivan about growing up, um, in a community where most of their friends were white and how they had to adapt or change their behavior to try to fit in. Uh, you know, Claire and Dale talked about what it would be like to raise mixed babies. Um, you know, we just, just a lot of important conversations. And so I think it's worth sticking by the franchise as it like takes slow incremental steps towards it. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, and there's also, you know, beyond uh, even racial diversity, uh, Colton season, there was a really important conversation where one of the contestants called Kaylin talked about having been sexually assaulted. Um, and then in Tasha season, we have two guys, Ben and Zach. Ben's a veteran. He talked about uh, his- Oh my gosh, yeah. Yeah, huge, huge 
Um, and Zach talked about his struggle with addiction. And so I think those are all really important conversations. So great that they're giving it this huge platform. Um, and so worth, you know, sticking by it and, and making sure that that continues. And it's fun. I have a question. If you were, if you were a producer on The Bachelor, like what is the first change you would make to how they do the show? Like how they run it in the background? Ooh, that's a really good question. Um, well, okay. So the first change I'd make is at the casting level. I would like, I just think that they cast way too young in general. Um, they just, they just cast way too many 21 year olds. And like, you know, maybe there's a 21 year old out there who's had an incredible life and is so mature. And like, there's a couple, right? Like, okay, there was Becca Martinez on Ari's season and everyone, you know, was like, oh, there's no way she's ready for marriage, blah, blah, blah. Now she's a mom of two babies. So, you know, it, it does happen. But I just think overwhelmingly under 24, 25, you're just not ready. Um, and so it's fine to have a couple of those. But in, in most seasons, it's the majority. So I, that would be the first change I'd make is I'd, I'd, I'd just cast older, basically. Because Love Island has the same problem. They cast super young, um, which is the franchise I'm in love with, um, which we can, we can <laughs> save for the next, yeah. love- <laughs> the next time we talk about reality shows. Love Island has so many issues. But the funny thing about Love Island is like they're not even trying to pretend like they're better than what they're putting on tv you know what i mean they're just like yeah this is this is great enjoy it. they're super self-aware they're super self-aware which is what i really like about it where the bachelor like there's a lot of insidious stuff that's happened in the background of how producers run that show of like continuously creating like a really toxic like environment whereas like love island to their credit everyone's constantly like hydrating with water like they're not just like drunk 20 hours a day which is what they make you do on the bachelor and they so they're allowed to eat like on the bachelor franchise they can't eat while they're on dates because of the microphone sound but i always worry that they just never eat (laughs) well also i think if i were a producer on the bachelor bachelor franchise i think i would i don't know i would put more effort into cultivating friendships between the contestants because they have a lot of time um together and it just seems like they're competing whereas like I feel like if there's 30 guys and only one of you is going to get her there is the opportunity to like become friends with each other and I think that would actually make them more interesting to the public if there's like friendships and like I don't know a brotherhood because sometimes I just feel like they're all waiting for someone to leave yeah and you know the sad part is that you get some of that on bachelorette and you get almost none of it on bachelor like they actually will show the guys becoming bros and working out together and every season there's at least one major bromance. Um, and, and The Bachelorette, if they're not showing cat fights, then they're not showing friendships either. They're just not showing anything, which is sad. Yeah, let's work on that. Let's work on that, you know, producers who are listening to our podcast. Okay, I do have one follow-up question. Who do you think Taisha will choose at the end of this season? Okay, so I'm going to be super cautious in the sense that I'm not going to give you like, I don't know who the final person will be, honestly, but I'm going to give you who I think are my top three and then out of that, my top two. Um, I think top three definitely will be um, Ben, Zach, and Brendan, I feel like. Not Ivan? No, I, I think Ivan... Ivan will go to hometowns, I think. So he'll be top four. But I just, I don't know. I don't feel the same chemistry, honestly. He's also quite young. And he works at Lockheed Martin, which is hilarious. He's a bit too shy for her. She, she needs a guy with a big personality. You know what I mean? He's a, he's, he's a bit more, you know, he's a bit more nerdy in a great way. And, you know, just a bit more, yeah. I think, um, and I, I think top two will be, Oh, I think top two will be Ben and Zach, but I don't know. Let's see. I'm rarely right as the bracket will show you <laughs> currently in fourth place. <laughs> yeah, we have a bracket and Annabelle like was way ahead in the beginning. And then I don't know what happened. We picked wrong. I skipped a week. I genuinely forgot to pick one week. And now we are, you're four, we're four and five, maybe. Yeah. Or I three mean, and four. Excuse at least if you missed a week. I just picked four. <laughs> we shall see um okay this seems like a good place to take a break when we come back we'll be talking about something entirely different so stay tuned 
I'm becoming a Charlie XCX fan. I'm like, oh, getting really into her. There's some, there's some catchy stuff yeah. there. All right, welcome back, everyone. This is a totally <laughs> different pivot. This is one of our less elegant um, episodes, but we are really excited about all these topics, so we just smushed them all together. Um, so, what we wanted to do was. Um, explore the history and um, the structure of countries that do not in any way exist, but we know them anyways. Um, so famous fictional lands um, and countries from movies um, and just kind of give you some background so you have the full historical context of these great nations. Um, I will say for our hardcore fans who know that I have never seen or read The Hunger Games, I decided to take a little deeper into Pan- Panem? How do you pronounce this? Help me. Panem. 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 Yes. I don't like that. That doesn't roll off the tongue. It does. Um, if you so watch the movie or read the book. Or... That is a strike against Hunger Games is that I can't quite figure out how to pronounce Panem. Panem. I want to say Panem. I want to say Panem, but it's not. It's Panem. Whatever. Anyways, <laughs> I researched it. Here's what I learned. Panem uh, derives from the Latin phrase uh, Panem et circensis. Circensis? Circenses. See, we're off to a great start here, uh, which translates into bread and circuses, which is a phrase used to describe entertainment that uh, is meant to dis- distract the public from more important matters, which some might even argue The Bachelor plays such a role. I don't know. Interesting. It's distracted me from important matters all fall. So, yeah, it's intentionally it's intentionally kept me from thinking about um, things that I don't want to think about, but should be thinking about. Um, but it's sort of one of the ways that it, uh, is a nod to the ancient Roman empire. So, uh, you know, that, that was an interesting thing to learn. I don't know. It's a sovereign state that was established after at an unknown time, which is really annoying. They have like, no, they can't give us a date. It's because like it's when. a dystopia. Yeah, like, but like, you're what? not meant you to know the date, but like, how do you not know when a giant ecological disaster and global conflict hit and then suddenly there was the collapse of modern civilization no one wrote that date down there's no record (laughs) of that date the point is that it's such a dystopia that like no one can even grasp the concept of time and history well so but here's the other problem like all the other timelines that i read about uh penem are all within like a few decades like if this wasn't like centuries of like unrest they're like 75 years later so they can track time forward and they hey, know it's been 75 years but they can't tell you when the end of the I'm world gonna be happened. honest the historians in panem were probably sent to like district like 12 <laughs> district 11 like they're like working in the fields they are not writing down dates yeah maybe i don't know it seems like a little bit of a i have some questions um but yes you mentioned uh you know the districts there is apparently so I've learned uh, a capital and there are districts. <laughs> Did you really not like watch any? No, aspect? I like had heard District 13, but I didn't know what that meant. Um, so okay. I fi- like, I was like, okay, so there's a capital and there's districts. Um, and fun fact, the capital exists in what is today the Rocky Mountains. So that's helpful context if anyone cares. Um, but each district provides a different economic or material service in exchange for protection um, provided by the peacemaker, the peacekeepers, not the peacemakers, the peacekeepers, which look like stormtroopers to me. Um, so it looks like a knockoff of Star Wars. So that's my other uh, thing that Everything's I'll point out. a knockoff of Star Wars. It's in, true. In but like they couldn't even change the color of the outfits. Like white <laughs> armor is a very stormtrooper thing. Um, so, you know, there's that. Um, there was a first rebellion, um, which was led by District 13. It failed, which brought about the dark days, um, which involved public executions and whippings and, uh, you know, restrictions and civil rights and all the horrible things that we know and love. Um, and eventually the Hunger Games. And I was like, oh, that's what the Hunger Games refers to. Um, so... <laughs> And then I watched it and I realized it's about a bunch of friends who like <laughs> talk to each other. <laughs> you oh have to understand how little I'd heard the name Katniss. I don't remember the other dude's name. Um, Wait, um, I forgot the, 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 the blonde one's name. Annabelle, do you remember? Because I was a fan of the Hemsworth, the big one. But what was, he had a really silly name. It had to do with bread. His, his arms, 
Right. His name, his, I, I, all I remember is that his arms smelled of bread. Someone wrote that somewhere in like some weird fan fiction. <laughs> and it just stuck. That's the one thing that stuck in my brain is that his arms smelled of bread. Oh, Liz Lemon said that on 30 Rock. <laughs> like, let me imagine PETA's arms smell like bread is what so she literally th- said. One thing you would know if you'd like watched the book sorry, watch the movie, I read the book, is that like in the book, Peta is like definitely the one you want to go for. Like he's really charming and sweet. And like, like, you know, there's like a whole kind of will they, won't they situation. But then the movie comes and they cast Liam Hemsworth as the other guy. And, and there was just all no bets chance. were off. Yeah. And, and Josh Hutcherson as Peta too. Like you got to mention both sides, you know? <laughs> okay, but I'm a Josh Hutcherson. I think he's so cute. I think he's really cute. Is he what? Liam Hemsworth cute? I don't know. But like, I think he's really cute. He, what? What he, he was like, wasn't recently? he the bridge to Terabithia kid? Maybe that's when I first had a crush uh, on him. He's, um, God, what was that really sort of very dark movie in set in New York? <gasps> yes. Yes. Uh, the crush on that kid. He's like 12. The blonde girl. Oh my God. What is this movie? What was that called? Little uh, Manhattan. Oh, he's in the yes. Polar Express. Little Manhattan. Yes. Exactly. Oh, that's not what I'm thinking oh. of. I'm thinking of Vince. Uh, Richard Terabithia. Yeah, that was where I think I first saw him. Zathura. He was good in The Kids Are All Right. I like The Kids Are All Right. That was fun. Kicking and okay. screaming. Okay, anyways, this is not a Josh Hutcherson um, fan club. It could podcast. be. It could be. It could be. You never know. Uh, that's, that's our next project, Aisha. Anyways, apparently there was a guy named President Ravenstill who was there pre-First Rebellion up until the 10th Hunger Games. And then there was President Snow who served for over 25 years until uh, the outbreak of the Second Rebellion, which came after the 75th Hunger Games. That math doesn't seem to yeah, be right. Yeah, the math I didn't, doesn't. I didn't, I didn't, he didn't question it. <laughs> I was like, all right, there seems to be a missing 50 years. But to your point, there are no historians. So like, what do I know? What does anybody know? Um, and then Commander Paler took over after, uh, you know, overthrowing the dictatorship and it became a democratic constitutional republic. I have to say that going from president to commander feels like the opposite direction of where you want to go title wise if you're moving to a more democratic <laughs> society. So that's my other uh, kind of thing that doesn't quite connect. Um, but anyways, obviously they wrote this, you know, country uh, really tying to this idea of like power and wealth disparities, which we know are a thing um, and ever growing, you know, we're in an age of uprisings, like so from like, you know, the Arab Spring to Black Lives Matter, like that's a theme that people are really interested in right now. Um, The idea of people being less misled to um, act or vote against their own self-interest, which is like a thing that is a problem we're having in this country, at least right now. Um, climate change, a thing we're thinking about. So there's a lot of themes. I see the themes, um, but real life is giving me all of those things. It's not giving me the escapism I so crave, um, which is why I'm excited to hear about the country you are going to teach us about, Annabelle, because it just sounds like a place I'd actually want to be on like Panam, which <laughs> makes me think of Panang curry as well. Like that's the other thing that I keep thinking. The way you say it reminds me of Panera bread. <laughs> <laughs> I think of Panang curry. So like I just think that they could have, there's a lot of workshopping and inconsistency that I found when I studied this country. It has not made me more curious to read the Hunger Games. So sorry, everybody. I'm going to get some low reviews because of this, this segment, but I stand by my principles. A great transition to my country, which is Genovia from the Princess Diaries. Um, if you're looking for escapism, there's literally nothing better. I mean, this is like the fake country equivalent of like ice cream. Like, I don't even know. It's just, yeah, um, fluff. And uh, essentially, Genovia is a fictional country um, that strongly resembles uh, Monaco. Um, it's, you know, between France and Italy. Uh, it's on the water, uh, lots of beaches. It's a very small country. It's beautiful. The main motor of the economy is tourism, but it also imports or exports olive oil. Um, There are, I should say for the hardcore fans also, that there are important differences between how Genovia is portrayed in the book. Yeah, exactly. For Aisha, essentially. Um, (laughs) Between how it's portrayed in the book and in the movie. 
Uh, and there was like massive differences between the characters. But for my purposes, I'm gonna go with the movies because it's literally been decades since I read the book. So I would definitely say something wrong and attract the um, ire of the Meg Cabot uh, fandom, which I don't wanna do. Okay, Meg Cabot stands, um, they're a lovely community, community of us and we are lovely people. We don't come for people. We want everyone to appreciate Meg, Meg Cabot's hard work and her love for love. So we're actually, it's not like, we're not scary. You know, definitely a few fans in there who'd send some like Genovian hired guys to kill me. I feel like but they just pelt you with pears. Like, what does a Genovian <laughs> hired gun do exactly? Or you could just try to make me eat that freakishly cold ice cream all the time so that eventually. Oh, would... that ice cream looked so yummy, though. The green one. Mm, yeah. Um, so it's a constitutional monarchy and the monarch, at least in the movies, is Emilia Mignonette Grimaldi Thermopolis Ronaldo, um, other, otherwise known as Princess Mia. Uh, there's also Lord Palamore, who we don't really, they don't really address what role he plays. He seems to be probably like Speaker of Parliament or something like that. And then there's Prime Minister Motaz. Also, we don't know his first name, but he's the Prime Minister. Um, and so Parliament, essentially, so there's two movies, and in the first movie, Mia finds out that she's a princess and heir to the throne of Genovia, and then in the second movie, she's there being trained to one day become queen, um, when the Genovian Parliament determines that she has to get married before she turns 21 in order to become queen, which is an archaic rule that is still part of the Genovian constitution, and essentially it comes to light because this very evil character whose nephew is um, also in line for the throne under the Genovian constitution. And who plays his nephew? Mm -hmm. Who plays his nephew? Well, I mean, our favorite, obviously. Our favorite Chris. Our favorite Chris. There's a lot of Chris's, but I mean, he's our favorite for sure. Our it's second fine. favorite Chris. It's my, fine. Second, <laughs> my second favorite Chris. Oh, it's your second. Who's your, who's your favorite? Oh, <laughs> you missed this. Um, Chris Hemsworth. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I could see that. Thank you. That was the most support I've ever gotten on this issue. Thank you, Annabelle. Thank you. you. Know, my, my favorite is still Chris Evans, but yeah. As long as it's not Pratt, we're all <laughs> safe. Is, is Pratt anybody's favorite? I don't know, unclear. Tommy Lahren's. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's it. Chaotic <laughs> energy right there. Um, but yeah, so anyways, so basically, um, she spends the whole movie trying to fight against this, uh, rule and be able to become queen without getting married. Now, I think that the most interesting question to look at Genovia, uh, is how would it fare during COVID-19? And the cool part about this, uh, thank you to Meg Cabot stands, is that we don't need to imagine this because she has graced us with some blog posts. Uh, that are extracts from Princess Mia's diaries during COVID-19 as she tries to figure out what to do with this public health emergency. Um, and it's just the most entertaining thing ever because the problems she has are not real problems like, at all. <laughs> it's like, it makes you feel like all the real problems you're dealing with and your country's dealing with, like trying to get a COVID vaccine and will you be able to see your family for Christmas, like don't even exist because you've got Princess Mia who's trying to decide whether or not she should sell her millions of euros worth of tiaras and diamonds and other jewelry in order to finance the Genovian economy while she locks businesses down, which you're like, okay, the Queen of England has a lot of jewels. I have not heard this idea being floated in the UK, all right? So, um, well, maybe Meg Cabot is starting is trying to start something. Maybe we should listen to her. Meg Cabot a socialist, guys. I think Meg, Meg Cabot is definitely like a, a mon a, like a monarch a socialist, but like a what is it a monarchy socialist? Like, not, so like I don't think it can be a thing. I don't know, but I think she's trying to do that. Is that not what she's kind of trying to do? I don't know if she's. I feel. I don't think she's a Republican. I don't think she wants to get rid of any kind of monarchy. But I do feel like she's showing the British family up by writing this lovely story where like Meg Cabot helps her people with her jewels. <laughs> we should share excerpts um, on our Instagram, Aisha. Let's do it. Annabelle, send it to us, please. Meg is always giving us content, by the way. Just direct, direct quote from one of her blog posts. I also have millions and millions of euros worth of crown jewels I can sell or pawn to help my people if I need to. She's not pawning anything. Like she's <laughs> not going to like a pawn shop and being like, what can you get me 
for this like 300 year old ruby necklace like what are you talking about hilarious um and so okay so it gets even funnier because so amelia obviously you know just feels that this is becoming a problem earlier than everybody else and takes it super seriously and locks down Genovia and closes all businesses. She has to tell her dad, who's super disappointed, that he cannot attend the Genovia Grand Prix. She has to force her like 80-something-year-old grandmother to come back from the yacht where she was partying with college students at the time in order to come back and quarantine at the palace. Um, It's all very serious, clearly. And that is until... She gets sued by her cousin, Ivan, who's a restaurateur (laughs) for depriving businesses of the right to earn an income. Later, she also gets sued by a bakery owned by a man called Mr. Panini. And yes, that is a real thing. So she gets sued by both. And um, there is a very highly entertaining scene. Now, keep in mind, this is like a dozen blog posts and I read all of them. But there's a very entertaining scene where there's a protest outside the palace. And they, there's a bunch of people holding up signs. And I'm just going to read you just a couple for entertainment value, okay? Uh, Please. Let, let my people golf. Um, don't cancel my yachting season. Be like Liechtenstein. Because apparently Liechtenstein didn't uh, lock down. down. Apparently not. Who knows? Not in, not in Meg Cabot's universe anyways. And we demand haircuts. We have the right to play Baccarat. And we want wine. So... <laughs> I will just end on that note because we want wine seems like a universally acceptable sentiment right now. I like that the Genovian people are actually standing up to her because I don't know if, if I had to assume, I would think that she just laid down the law and everyone said yes. Cause they loved her so much, but it adds some spice that like people are protesting her. I'm sure she'll make it out. All right. She'll still be queen. Um, yeah. I think she'll be okay. She'll be fine. Okay, and now my choice, uh, fictional country. My first choice was Aldovia from The Christmas Prince, but there's only two movies, not enough material. Because you, with Genova, you have your books and you have, you know, the Meg Cabot blog. With Aldovia, it's just a poorly written movie that everyone loved for like one month. Um, It's a good movie, but poorly written. Okay, I decided to go with The Republic of Gilead, which is from um, The Handmaid's Tale, the book, as well as the TV show, if that's what you watch. Um, It's essentially a theocracy of the former U.S. um, And uh, Gilead is a patriarchal Christian totalitarian state that has, um, by the beginning of the novel, The Handmaid's Tale, but by the beginning of the novel, it has overthrown the U.S. government. So like Panem in The Hunger Games, the book uses the U.S. geography as as a touchstone, as a way for people to kind of be introduced to the world. Like it's, Gilead takes place where we technically should be living in right now. And that kind of helps people understand. So some basic facts about Gilead. Um, It's a theocracy. Everyone is divided by sex, occupation, and race. And each person is assigned a role in society. Um, The men are at the top. Um, Those men are called commanders. And their wives support them. But because they can't provide children for them, because they're usually infertile, um, middle-class and lower-class women called handmaidens are seized from their homes and families and forced to procreate with the commanders. And... um, In Gilead, the treatment of women is based upon a fundamentalist interpretation of the Bible. Um, This is from Wikipedia, Uh, meaning that women are the property of and subordinate to their husband, father, or head of the household. So as a result, women aren't allowed to vote, hold hold jobs, read, or have money, or even just own anything. Um, And uh, the book was written by 1985 by Margaret Atwood, Atwood. and it was seen as this kind of like dystopian tale, but like there's so many people who can draw parallels between what happens in Gilead and what happens even today in many countries and the way women are treated, um, even in countries where you think that like women have a lot of freedom. And so I just really like, you know, watching and reading about Gilead because it's it's just interesting to like draw those parallels. Um, now, is the country well organized? On the surface, it is like kind of like Pan Am, there's kind of a center and there's people in charge and there's you know, punishments and penalties, et cetera, et cetera. But like in the rest of the country, there's a lot of rebellion. There's a lot of people, you know, kind of sneaking around on the edges of society. Even the commanders, the ones who are meant to be like the most pure and the most religious, they go to like brothels, you know, and the wives of commanders are also kind of always sneaking around. Some of them even 
um, getting with the help, etc. So it's also very, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It's critical. Yes, hypocritical, super hypocritical. Um, and I think that like the thing that breaks um, Gilead down is that like when you're looking at strict interpretations of like religious or fundamental text, it gets harder and harder to create more rules that actually hold any weight because you're basing it on something that was written that has specific time and specific circumstances. And the further you move away from that, the harder it is to make up these rules. So um, you find people who are skirting the rules or just trying to avoid them altogether um, if they have the power. And um, just bringing in how Gilead would fare during COVID, I think it, there would be a two-tier system where like commanders and their families and everyone in their household would be safe. They would have isolated and like gotten the vaccines first, but then everyone else, people who, um, there's actually like these concentration camps that they've created um, kind of on the outskirts of society where they put women who are infertile or they put um, African-Americans, they put homosexuals, um, I think the people in those concentration camps would definitely get COVID. And in fact, Gilead might actually just kind of let them die just because it's easier than trying to control the population. Wow, it's a very sad tone to end on. What I'm trying to say is that Gilead is really messed up, um, but it's an interesting But country. I think this is like, it's more realistic to me than Penem, obviously with like the way that society can descend because we do see so many similarities. Like, the reality is like when um, Trump was elected, people were wearing hoods from this rather than like whatever the heck they wear in Hunger Games. I don't know. Um, but I think that like both of these systems, what's interesting is like, and this is true, like anytime anyone tries to do anything like truly totalitarian or um, trying to base it off uh, literal interpretations is that they fail to take into account that they are just as flawed as all the people they're trying to control, right? Like to your point, like commanders are not pure beings. Like they're just as screwed up as everybody else, if not way more screwed up, but they're like, oh, everyone should behave a certain way. And like no one in their own ranks does. And obviously that eventually is gonna catch up to them. So I don't know if that's gonna catch up with like our fascist regime. I guess it kind of did to start a little bit, but uh, we'll see, we'll we shall see. see. So yeah. That was my country. Fun. Gilead. Fun. <laughs> did you know there's a real uh, city in North Carolina called Gilead? I did not. Mm -hmm. Is it named after the Bible or Handmaid's Tale? I don't know. I, <laughs> I didn't ask. When someone told me, I was like, oh, okay. And I left it there. <laughs> there's also a pharmaceutical company, right? Oh, yeah. The pharmaceutical company. That is true. Gilead they changed, they, they should have changed it. I'm just going to throw it out there. <laughs> interesting so before we leave do any of you have any new year's resolutions because this is our last uh, episode before christmas before the oh. year annabelle you go first Ooh, pressure okay um i will preface this by saying that i never actually speak to my new year's resolutions so these are more like aspirational uh goals but um i would like to actually read all of the books that I bought for myself during lockdown thinking, Ooh, I'm going to have all this extra time to read. And then I actually read less than I used to. Uh, so I would like to, I, I think I have like 12 books unread. Um, so yeah, that's, that's, that's my goal. I've gone with you to a bookstore before um, <laughs> for pandemic books. I remember you buying them and I was thinking, is she going to read all of these? And now I know the answer. Absolutely not. The thing is, books are cheap here, as you'll know. And sure. so their expectation, because you're like, ah, oh, eight pounds. Yeah, this seems great. I'll read it one day. But then they just accumulate on your shelf and you don't read them. So my goal is to get through that pile. That's a great goal. Um, mine is to be on time for podcast recordings. <laughs> <laughs> That's a big one for me. And also to be kinder to myself. I think I say that every year, but I think I really want to work on it this year to try not to be too down on myself and to stop saying sorry as much as I do. That's a good I one. support that. You and Bridget constantly talk about that. Yeah, I think. And also, I think we should always reaffirm every single year, if not more frequently, that we should be kind to ourselves. So I don't think that's a That's a good one to repeat. Um, I think I would like to, like, on a serious note, be a lot more organized um, because I do balance a thousand things every day. Um, and I'm 
I'm a little too chaotic right now. I need to be a little less chaotic. Um, but like, I would also, you know what? You've inspired me. I would like to get back into the Bachelor Bachelorette franchise. I think that's, yes. I, I've taken, I've taken my hiatus for a couple of years. I have healed. I'm ready to be hurt again. Let's do it. Let's do it. You just made my day, my week, my year. What am I saying? Perfect. You want well, to 2020 was, was bleak, so I'm glad I could make it better. Um, Do you want to join us every Wednesday, 8 p.m. GMT? It's the best time. <laughs> so you mean like the middle of my workday? Just like stop everything I'm doing? <laughs> the bachelor's on. You have to come. <laughs> well, I guess I set my own schedule. So yeah, I'll see you there in the middle of the week, in the middle of the day, in the middle of the week. Um, I will be there. That sounds super fun. Bad James this season also looks like it's going to be complete chaos and Rachel Lindsay whom I trust with my life and everything she says is gospel um believes that he's not going to end up with anyone because he's not like emotionally ready um his whole cast is like 22 year olds uh, see previous point um and so it should be fun sold sold all right I'm joining okay well this is great Miriam do you want to I know. Well, thank you all for a wonderful year, 20 episodes. Um, We're excited to um, have been able to do this with you. Thank you for all your support. We've had so much fun. We've learned a lot. I've learned a lot. I didn't know anything about anything until I started doing this uh, podcast. So thank you, Aisha, (laughs) for educating me. (laughs) (laughs) I was a blank slate and now it's it's full of all sorts of junk. I'm never going to do anything with. I have so much information in my head that I never need, but I love it. So Thank you for all of that. Thank you all for your support. Um, we will be back in 2021, but until then, um, please be sure to rate, review, subscribe. We are anywhere that you get your podcast: Spotify, Google, Apple, whatever it might be. And you can follow us at Kind of Funny Pod on Instagram and Twitter. And also you can email us at kindoffunnypodcast at gmail.com. Uh, finally, thank you to Annabelle for coming today for our 20th episode. This was really fun. And I guess we'll see you all next year. Bye.